Good morning, everyone. I'm John McGill, our associate pastor here at Park Rogers Park. Glad to be with you. Michelle, thanks for being with us here today as well. What a testimony of faith. Thank you for that, sister. I'm actually just coming back from the Breakers Retirement Community in, in Edgewater. Preached a message there this morning. They all say hi to you. They'd love for you to say hi to them as well. One of them, you know, obviously it's an elderly crowd. One of them said to me this morning, are, are, are they, I've never met her. She said, are, are you the youth pastor? <laughs> I don't know what that means. I'll, hey, I'll take it. Yeah. I recently read a story that piqued my interest. And if, if you use the Apple News app, you may have come across this story. Um, Across this headline, uh, it said, there is a woman who finally came forward as the winner of a $12 million New York lotto jackpot in 1987, and she never submitted the winning ticket. Didn't get the money in 1987. uh, Adjusted for an inflation, that's $32 million today. Now, normally I would not click on this kind of story. It doesn't really pique my interest, but for some reason, the way that the story or the headline was worded, I thought we were going to read a story about a woman who decided to not claim a $12 million jackpot for a very good reason. And the fact of the matter is, I'll be, up, I'll be honest, I am not a big fan of the lottery. I think it has all sorts of problems. We're not supposed to treat God's money that way as well. But if you handed me a winning lottery ticket, I'd probably buy a Porsche 911 and justify that I'm going to use it for the church and, and all that stuff. So. But here's the thing. <clears throat> you know, some of you are probably thinking, well, this just really doesn't sound like a good story at all. The woman just didn't get $12 million. Well, turns out it wasn't a good story. And here's what happened. The woman accidentally threw out her lottery ticket. And then even, like, when I'm reading the story, I'm thinking, like, you know, I don't like the lottery, but then like, oh man, like, oh, I hope she gets like the $12 million in, in all this, you know, and, and she even hired lawyers and she has all the surveillance video camera evidence to show that she in fact did pick up that ticket. But unfortunately, as many of us know, you need the physical ticket to pick up the prize. And to boot, she was a single mother, had two children, really would have helped out painful. The story goes on. It says that if she just, she reflects that she had to console herself for years and still does with, with stories about lottery winners that have, whose lives have turned out horrible. And that is very common, by the way. And then she continues to go on. She says, if I had this lottery ticket, my life would be completely different. And, and, and here's the other thing. She says, I still need to play the lottery because I still need to find that winning ticket to fill that void. So many of us come in here today with voids, with shortcomings, with paralyses, with afflictions. You know, perhaps we come in here needing something. Perhaps maybe we want something, we need something, maybe to happen today or this week. Maybe we lost something. Maybe we never had something. Maybe we're reminded every single day that we don't have this thing and there is a deep need for healing. Well, today we come to an episode where a man and his wonderful friends locate Jesus 
to ask him to meet a need, and this man has a very legitimate need, a need for healing. Not only do we find Jesus at his best here, but we also find Jesus providing something that most everyone was not expecting. So we continue our gospel series in Luke here. We're still exploring who this person Jesus is. Last week, Phil preached on Jesus healing the leper. Today, we have a back-to-back episode of Jesus healing someone else. As we delve into the next verses here, chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. So again, turn to your Bibles, chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, and they read like this. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? You cannot forgive sin. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up from them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you grateful yet again that we get to delve into the life of Jesus. And we pray, Father, that we would take from this word what it is that you desire for us to take. Father, would you simply open our eyes and ears to hear from you today? We pray, Father, that the words that are of you, those would be the words that dwell in our hearts richly, bringing us closer to you, conforming us more into the likeness of Jesus, compelling us to know more about who Jesus is, that we may love him and submit our lives to him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, well, in the text here, chapter 5, Jesus is in the Galilean region, which is about 120 miles north of Jerusalem. Galilee is where Jesus' ministry began, and he's teaching and preaching and healing. All the while doing so, people are astounded by his teaching. People are amazed by his, his healing power. And then here, there's, there's all sorts of people from a, around a larger region that are wanting to see Jesus in person and hear from him. So here, verse 17, we find Jesus teaching again. And this time, we find him inside a house where a very large crowd has gathered inside and out. 
We're, we're going to be looking at a number of characters in and around this house today. This is a historical event that is depicted in all four Gospels. John's Gospel just has a couple of verses attributed to it, but it's in all four Gospels. In Luke's account, we, here we find a few different groups and people within the narrative. And as we traverse through the story here, we are going to look at each and every group through the text. And so with this first verse, we find the text is quick to point out that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were present. And this is the first time we're introduced to the Pharisees in the book of Luke. Now, if you aren't sure who the Pharisees were, the Pharisees were a particular religious sect of Jews that held very strict observance to the law in the Torah, or what we would call the Old Testament. And they were very intent on living clean airtight lives so that they would never violate this law. They even developed all sorts of rules and regulations to impose on the Jewish society to help everyone also not violate these laws, but the Pharisees were were very committed to all these rules and and so forth. Now, just to give you a bigger picture or, or a better picture of what society was like back then, Most Jews were not Pharisees, and most of them didn't even belong to any of these other prominent groups that we might read in the Bible that are sort of like the Pharisees. Rather, most Jews 2,000 years ago, with no electricity and running water and so forth, they were just people trying to survive. They may have had faith, but on a day-to-day basis, these are just people trying to survive. But the Pharisees they, held, they were very influential in society. They had leadership positions, and, and they knew their, their Bibles really, really well. And so a lot of Jews find them, found themselves answering to the Pharisees on a very regular basis. And so in Scripture, we find many significant debates with the Pharisees, and even though a handful of Pharisees actually do get on board with Jesus, we consistently find them averse to Jesus' interpretation of Scripture and overall message and mission. So when the Pharisees enter the picture here, we find them coming from all over Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the text is also quick to point out that we find them in a sitting down position. This would have signified that they they came in to see Jesus with a sense of authority and with a a hands crossed type attitude. And when you come to the Lord Jesus with hands crossed, that kind of signifies that you are not willing to hear and receive all that Jesus has to offer. Well, verse 18, another group enters the crowd and picture, and we read in the word here, behold. When Scripture says behold, that means God wants to get your attention. And here we find a group of men. The Gospel of Mark says there were four men. We find four men carrying their friend on a bed. The friend, the friend was paralyzed, and the four men wanted to bring him to Jesus. Now, Hear this, if you have friends like this, you do not want to lose those friends. These men cared for their paralyzed friend. They wanted him to experience a better life and hang out with them in more capacity. And they believed that if they were to bring their friend to Jesus, Jesus would be able to heal him. But apparently this house was so packed that it was proving difficult for the men to get their paralyzed friend inside. So what do they do? They decide to take their friend to the roof. Can we get a, a picture of what this may have looked like? So here, the paralyzed friends, you can see why they went to the roof. They couldn't just say, hey, you know, can you excuse us a bit? No. 
it was more like if, if this is what the house looked like and the word said it was difficult for them to get in because of the crowd, it, would, it may have been something like this where there's just so many people that you cannot ask everyone to move because Jesus would have been probably right here or, yeah, probably right there, and, and it's, just, you know, it's just not possible. But what do we see over here? These are stairs. So what do the men do? They use the stairs. It's very common for stairs to be a part of houses like this in the region during this time. Why do they put stairs in the house during this time? Well, sometimes you and I, we like to chill out. We like to relax. We like to look at the scenery. Same with thing with these folks. They like to build house, stairs to their houses so that they could go to the roof and hang out. So it wasn't necessarily difficult for the four men or the men to bring their paralyzed friend to the roof of the house. What is startling is what they do. The text says they took apart a large portion of the roof to rope their paralyzed friend on a bed down so that he could be close to Jesus. Think of that. That must have been a humongous hole. What was the owner of the house thinking? Can we get another picture here? So... These roofs, they would have been made of beams and sticks. And the text, verse 19, says they removed tiles. So these tiles would have made, been made of thatch or, or hardened mud. And on top of that hardened, on top of those tiles, there would have been several more inches of hardened mud. So these friends were doing a major work here. What kind of determination and faith did these friends have? My hope is that we all have friends like this. My hope is that I'm a friend like this. Let me ask, do you have friends like this in your life? Do you have friends in your life that will show up to the hospital when things aren't going well? Do you have friends in your life that are willing to be inconvenienced to, be, to pick you up? Do you have friends in your life that have a faith that Jesus will recognize? Do you have friends in your life that will bring you to Jesus? And what are the friends doing here? They're destroying some guy's house. There's got to be mega dust flying around. You know what's happening in the scene? Faith is in action. These guys are saying, we don't care if we need to make a humongous hole in this nice house. We don't care if we need to dig a hole underneath the house. No matter what, we are bringing our friend to Jesus and God loves that kind of faith. That kind of faith does not go unheard. Are we a people that will carry our friend, our neighbor, our coworker to Jesus? Well, Jesus looks up at the friends, roping their friend down. And in verse 20, we get Jesus' response. Jesus, Jesus looks at the paralyzed man's friends, sees the faith he recognizes. The faith would have been a lot, the faith of the friends would have been a lot different than the Pharisees amongst the crowd, right? And Jesus responds to the men's faith and their desire to see their, their friend healed. He turns to the paralyzed man and says, man, your sins are forgiven. Because of the faith of the friends, a glorious healing has now been achieved. Says a lot about the importance of our faith toward the people around us. Says a lot, of, a lot about the importance of the faith of our friends. 
But let's back up a second. God is communicating the most profound lesson of the passage here. Obviously, the friends brought the paralytic to Jesus so that Jesus would heal his paralysis. And instead, we hear Jesus forgiving the man's sins. God wants to communicate something to us here. The text is set up so that when we're reading this text, especially with the last text that we just read last week, it's set up to make us think that Jesus is going to make this man walk again. We don't actually read in the text the friend's reactions to Jesus' pardoning of sin, but it would be reasonable to say that, to read this and say, you know what, it's possible the friends were thinking like, Jesus, uh, yeah, wow, thank you for forgiving our friend's sins. That, that is awesome. That, that's amazing. And yeah, and, and, and you know, actually, we just came into this house so that you would take away our friend's paralysis. And, and in fact, if you could just do that, Jesus, that, that would be above and beyond. You're, you're the only guy that can do that, Jesus, and you know that, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, just, just do that. That would be humongous. The story doesn't end there. The text doesn't make it clear whether the friends of the paralyzed man knew that the man's greater need was not the ability to walk, but rather to have the forgiveness of sins. And therein lies an important question for us. Do you know your greater need? That's the main question that we want to take with us today. There's all sorts of other lessons and nuggets in this chapter. We're not going to touch on all of them. Do you know your greater need? Now, if someone is a paralytic, there is nothing wrong with desiring healing. If doctors can somehow figure out how to fix a broken spinal cord, we are all for that. They are researching that every single day across the world. That is something we can pray for and hope for. However, you and I, we encounter so many kinds of needs and desires in our lives, so often the kinds of needs that fill our minds. If you are like me or a lot of us in the room, some of our needs or desires might be a need for a bigger house, and we have a small house, a need for a promotion, a need for a job, a need to get into that school, a need for a kids to get into that school, a need to find a spouse a need for a car, a need to hit a sales quota. And hear me out, I was in sales for 17 years. You need to hit your quotas to keep your job. Right, Joe? A need for physical healing. Some good needs in there, some great needs, no doubt. All of them good to various extents. But are any of those the greatest need? No doubt there are some people in here that are dealing with some very, very tough things. And as a pastor, I get to hear many of your stories. And I am earnestly praying for some of those specific things, for virtually all of those specific things that you have said are a major burden in our lives and are taking up way too much energy in our lives and are causing us great sadness. I, I want those things to be healed, specifically the way that you've stated it. There's many needs out there, many desires, many healings that do need to take place. We live in a world that has fallen. There was a big headline in 1994. 
and also, it had all sorts of political implications and such. <clears throat> if you were... <coughs> I went down the wrong pipe. If you're from the Chicagoland area, at the heart, you may have heard the story, at the heart of the headline was a Chicago pastor, Scott, and his wife, Jan Janet. <clears throat> they came to faith as adults a little later in life, kind of like myself. They came to embrace Jesus' words. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and they lived lives as lives redeemed. And at the time of this 1994 headline, they'd gone to Bible school, and Scott was pastoring a church. They had nine children at this point. Things were going well. But one November day, Scott and Janet were traveling in I-94 up to Wisconsin with their six youngest children, and all of a sudden there's this truck ahead of them and this metal pipe falls off. Scott's got to make a real quick decision. There's this metal pipe in the middle of the road. Instead of hitting the car next to him and risking injury to those folks, he decides real quickly to line up his tires so that the pipe would go right in between the car, probably sustain some damage, but simply doing that, hoping that there is minimal damage. Well, the worst occurred. The pipe hits the gas tank. The car, the van, is immediately engulfed in flames. The three children in the back, they would have perished immediately. The three children in the middle, they would have perished shortly thereafter. Scott and Janet, they pull over to the side real quickly. They get out of their car. They sustain major in in injuries. Six children gone in an instant. Jesus said them, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, you said life. What is life? Now, if you were to hear some of the interviews and hear their testimony of faith in the midst of such a horrible tragedy, you will find a couple that stuck with Jesus. This incident didn't end Scott's and Janet's ministry. Scott still pastored for many years later. But does life with Jesus include losing your six, six youngest children Lord, you said life. What is life? What kind of healing would need to take place in that family's lives? What kind would they have to possess in order to continue ministering to people, let alone just live life? I'll tell you what, for this story in particular, God was actually quite generous. They had six more kids. Their ministry continued, but it doesn't always end like that, does it? Many of you know <clears throat> we have a church location at Apirion Lakeshore Nursing Home on Sheridan, 7200 Sheridan. Most of the residents there are afflicted with mental or physical disease, some of it their entire lives, some, some of it more very recent. They live there because they need some help, many paralytics. I'm there every single week. If you are interested in attending one of our weekly services, come let me know. Come join us. As an aside, 
Phil mentioned church planting. We are a church committed to church planting. Some of us are praying, please join me in prayer as we are considering um, what God wants to do with a new church plant in another nursing home on Ridge, Aperian West Ridge, just north of Devon. Please pray for that. And if you are interested in being a part of that, let me know again. Cindy Coy, where's Cindy? Cindy. She comes with me often to Aperian Lakeshore. And she's been serving there for years. I've been there for a year. She's been there serving, she's been ser- there, serving there for years. And earlier this year, she introduced me to a faithful, Christ-following gentleman uh, named Leonard. Leonard has been a quadriplegic his entire life. Never had the ability to walk. His spinal cord is still intact, but, he's, but he has cerebral palsy and lives his entire life laying down his head at a 70-degree angle. So whenever he looks at you, whenever he's watching TV, this, this is how he sees you. And he can't use his fingers real well. He can just enough to push buttons. His limbs are extremely limited. Basically, he can't move them, but because his spinal cord is still intact, if he's in an uncomfortable position, he can still feel the pain. Many of us don't know what that is like. And he's 87 years old, and he's a follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, you said life. What is life? Cindy and I visited Leonard together about three weeks ago. We were with him for about an hour, and, and I got to hear a lot more about his life, a life that never included walking. Thankfully, in his early, early teenage years, after some wrestlings and trying to make sense out of life, Jesus entered his heart. God made it clear to him that one day he'll get to be with God for a, with a perfected body. But even more so, Leonard was encouraged by the realization that he gets to be with God now and forever, and that has been enough for him. And there's been a lot of grace there, as you can imagine, over 87 years, what he's had to deal with. Deal with. And he has such kind words to say to people. Think of the words that we say. He's not the judgmental type, I gather, but he did quip to me, you know, I see a lot of people out and about, and, you know, they are just trying to derive as much happiness out of life as they possibly can without giving much thought to faith. That was his observation. And for Leonard, his faith is his most valuable possession. Faith is the most valuable need that Jesus met His faith is his most valuable healing. Leonard is a forgiven man, and there is no greater healing, no greater life on earth than being forgiven by God. Well, now we turn back to the text here, verse 21. After Jesus told the paralytic, man, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees weren't happy to hear this, and they demanded to Jesus Who can forgive sins but God alone? And it is true that only God can forgive sins. But Jesus knew the condition of their hearts, so he throws them a question. Jesus asks, which is easier to tell someone who's paralyzed, your sins are forgiven, 
or pick up your bed and walk? That's a great question for people to debate together, a great question for, for Christians to debate. Maybe you debated that question in your small group. I included that in your small group study this week, by the way, last week. Well, the answer to that question is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because anyone can come up to someone and say, hey, buddy, your sins are forgiven. I'm the one who forgave, forgave him, by the way. You know, and then the guy says, well, you know, how do you know? You can say, well, hey, don't worry. Just 40 years from now, you'll find out. But if you say to someone, your paralysis is healed, well, then someone's going to want to see proof of that right off the bat. So what does Jesus do? To show the Pharisees and the crowd that his words have power and authority that only he possesses, Jesus turns again to the paralytic with a face of compassion and he tells the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. A second miracle took place. The paralytic was no longer paralytic. His limbs started moving. After years or decades of being stiff and shriveled, he got up. He picked up his bed just like Jesus told him to. He began to walk. And the text says he was glorifying God. And all the crowd was amazed by Jesus' work as well. And Jesus showed the crowd, the Pharisees, the friends, the ex-paralytic, what kind of a healer he was. There were no known boundaries to Jesus' healing capabilities. If Jesus could heal a paralytic, what else could he heal? Jesus was basically saying to the folks, hey, if I can make a man walk... What else do you think I can heal? If I can make a a man walk, I am Lord over a lot more than you can imagine. This event happened 2,000 years ago. And if we were to ask the paralytic about that day or his life, you know, he'd probably say, oh, yeah, I won the lottery that day. That was awesome. A one in a trillion chance that I could have walked again and I was able to do it. Jesus did that for me. I'm still thankful for that. It was amazing. But you know what? It wasn't quite as awesome as being able to walk with Jesus for the last 2,000 years. That was the greater healing. That was the greater need that Jesus met, my reconciliation back to my Savior. Is that greater healing present in your life? Well, whether or not we are clear on the answer to that question, let's explore from the text some applications to help us get close to it. First, plain and simply, application number one, have friends that have faith. Have friends that have faith. And the easiest way to do that here at Park Community Church is to join one of our small groups. If, if you're trying to figure out how to do that, you can go to our Linktree page. You can find a link there to get plugged in. You can also just ask someone, say, are you in a small group? Start conversation that way. Small group is a great way to be known and loved and cared for. And on top of that, you, you get to dig into the Word together and pray for things together. If prayer's not your thing, let other people pray for you. You get to serve in the community. It's a really great place. I'm very passionate about the small group ministry. I've been able to lead a lot of those and be a part of a lot of those over my Christian walk. 
But here's the other thing. The Christian life wasn't meant to be lived alone. That wasn't God's design. That wasn't part of his plan. It wasn't meant to be that way. We are meant to do life with others. Have friends that have faith. Let them pick you up when you need picking up. Second application is this. If we have faith, be a friend with faith. Be a friend with faith. Imagine if all of us in the room here, if all of us, everyone who's a follower of Christ was radically determined about bringing Jesus to the neighborhood, imagine what that could do. Jesus affects people. And if you come to a place, we've all been at different places, if you come to a place where you're saying, well, you know, I, I don't know about myself, I don't know if I'm going to be the, the most, you know, the best advocate for Jesus, you know, maybe someone comes up to you and says like, hey, you know, by the way, like I know where you've been, you're a sinner, you're actually a worse sinner than me, all you have to say is, well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, but you know what? I've met the one person that can wipe my slate clean and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the one who does all the work. Be a friend with faith. Third application is this. Know your greatest need. Know your greatest need. That's the one application I really want you to take. Do you know your greatest need? A lot of us in the room here, we come here because we think it is best for us. We want to succeed. We want to be happy. We want to have a good week. I want those things as well. But so often we walk into this room, we don't necessarily come here ready to worship the one who saves. That's why when you, when you go to a church, it's called a worship gathering. We come in here to worship the one who saves. Our greatest need isn't getting, that, getting into that school program, isn't getting that promotion. It isn't even finding a cure for a disease. Suffice it to say, it most certainly isn't winning the lottery. Whatever desires you have in your life, your greatest need is to be, be restored back to your God, which by grace only Jesus can do for you. If we need help in our marriage, we look to our need for Jesus first. If we need help in our singleness, we look to our need for Jesus first. If we need help with our physical pain, we look to our need for Jesus first. If we need help paying the bills, we look to our need for Jesus first. If we need help keeping a job, we look to our need for Jesus first. Because when we look at our need for Jesus and realize that Jesus has given us everything we need through his forgiveness, we can deal with all the trials and sufferings that life has to offer knowing that we belong to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, you are a treasured possession. There is no safer place that you can be. And followers of Christ know how the longer story ends. Jesus is the great healer. He can heal things with the words of his mouth. He can heal with his touch. He can even simply think it and it'll be healed. 
Maybe there is some particular need or desire in our lives that we want to resolve one way or another and we haven't received that answer yet. Maybe it's been very long. If that's you, Jesus has not turned away his face of compassion. No, he's looking at you right now with that face of compassion because our need for forgiveness of sins, all the ways we've gone astray, all the ways we have rebelled, all the ways that we've thought up ugly things, all the ways that we've done ugly things, all the ways that we have just simply missed the mark, Jesus can say it, touch it, and think it, but he's got to do a lot more to fix it. He's got to go all the way to the cross. And it's at the cross where he felt pain. At the cross, it cost him suffering. It cost him humiliation. It cost him abandonment. It cost him rejection. It cost him his entire life. And Jesus smiles at us. Because with such a large price that he paid for us, he is saying, you are worth it. You are my treasured possession. And I care for you more than you could possibly imagine. I care about you more than you've ever cared for yourself. And if you receive me, there is treasure waiting for you. It's actually my treasure. It's my glory. And you and I, we simply get to share it. And someday, Jesus will tell us to get up from our paralysis, come home where no need for healing exists because our sins are forgiven. Rogers Park, in a moment moment we're going to come to the communion table and we're going to pray. Ushers, please come forward. Communion is a celebration. It is for followers of Christ. It's a time where we celebrate Jesus meeting our greatest need. It is a time where we remember Jesus' face of compassion as he went to the cross and suffered on our behalf. Maybe you are wrestling with a need or desire or something. It's taking up way too much of your energy and headspace and it's too much for you to bear, know that we, have, we will have deacons along the corner. You can come up and talk to the pastors here as well. Maybe you aren't certain if your greatest need has been met. If that's you, we'd love to talk to you, and we're grateful that you're here. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's you. You're invited to the table. 1 Corinthians 11 says on the night that Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he broke bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup and said, after supper, this is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you drink of this cup, do this in remembrance of me. When you're ready, come up. Take the bread. Dip it in the cup. Christ's body given for you. Christ's blood shed for you. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. Father, we thank you that you have met us exactly where we are. You know exactly where we are, whether we have realized or not. Father, we have all the proof in the world to know that you care for us because you sent your son, Jesus,
to give his ultimate sacrifice. And Father, you know where our hearts are today, this week, this season. Lord, you who are full of compassion, we praise you, Father, as we come to the communion table, knowing, Father, that no matter how much we have rebelled against you, you are simply a much better forgiver. Father, we thank you for Jesus as we take the bread, dip in a cup. We remember what it is that Jesus gave up on our behalf. Father, would you simply stir our hearts for you? Would we come to the table in celebration and joy, knowing, Father, that you are the great healer? We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.